You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vincent. Today is a special edition podcast with the sermon introductions for the last 16 weeks have been consolidated into one episode to help us summarize the teachings of the book of Romans. God, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word together this morning. I pray that you would uh, enlighten us about the truth that's contained here. God, I pray that you would speak truth to our minds and hearts, and God, that we would not suppress that truth, but instead we would receive that truth, knowing that uh, this is your inspired word that comes directly from you, instructions for us about how to live our life faithfully as we wait for the second coming of Jesus. So, Father, I pray that you would teach us more about this gospel, this faith that you taught us to contend for in the book of Jude. Father, I pray that we would wrap our minds around this gospel in a way that we can effectively and faithfully communicate it to others. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We did kind of an introduction to Romans last week. I gave you some reasons why I believe we should study the book of Romans. Uh, I told you that one commentator said to know Romans is to know Christianity. So as we study Romans, it helps us to to understand the, the basic core beliefs of Christianity. It's, it's Paul's dissertation or his thesis on uh, what the gospel is and, and what it means to be a Christian. Now, I told you that there are some some things that are missing from this book that, that we need to gain knowledge about from other New Testament books. So I told you that uh, the book of Romans is somewhat quiet about the second coming of Jesus. It talks about that hope, but doesn't go into great detail about what to expect or what to look forward to. So we go to First and Second Thessalonians to, to reap that. It doesn't go into a, a ton about the resurrection. It doesn't go into the Lord's Supper. We go to First Corinthians for those teachings. And so I told you that Romans acts like an operating system when we think of computers. It's that operating system that allows the other apps to function properly. So we gain knowledge from the other books of the New Testament, but that knowledge is, is helped greatly by the knowledge that we get from the book of Romans. So we, we understand the gospel in First and Second Thessalonians because we understand the gospel from the book of Romans. So Romans allows the rest of the New Testament to have the depth of meaning that it does for us because of what we learn from the book of Romans. We said that Paul wrote the book of Romans to pass along apostolic teaching to this church. We said it was started without the help of Paul, without the help of a specific apostle. So he wants to pass along some specific teaching to them. Uh, He also wants to use Rome as his base of operations. His intention is to go as far west as he can with the gospel. So he has intentions. He tells them, I want to go to Spain with the gospel. Rome would have been that stopping point and that base of operations for him to do that type of ministry. I told you from from this study, we're going to learn about the, the dire problem that mankind has in regards to sin. We're going to understand better why the world is the way that it is today. So as we look around and see the sin and the suffering around us, our understanding of how that meshes with a good and loving and just God comes from this study in the book of Romans. It also helps answer the question how a person can be right with God, which is the question that all religions try to answer for us. We said the major theme of the book is God's righteousness revealed in Christ that is acquired by faith. So God reveals righteousness to us through Christ. We receive that righteousness by faith, which is what Romans 1, 16 through 17, our memory verse for this week, communicates to us. I gave you two important definitions last week. The gospel. The gospel is God's plan to save man from his sin through Christ by faith for his glory forever. I told you you could kind of condense that down into a collection of Five words. Does anybody remember those five words that helps us remember that definition for the gospel? God, man, sin. What's the answer to sin? Christ. And the way we receive Christ is with our response. So man, or God, man, sin, Christ, response. Um, that's the gospel. It's God's plan to save man from his sin through Christ by faith for his glory forever. And we learned about that um, a little bit last week, that purpose of for his glory forever, when Paul says that um, his desire is to take the gospel to the nations for the name of Christ. He says in verse 5, we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. 
So that's the definition for the gospel. We said justification, which is a theme that runs throughout the book of Romans. It means to be declared righteous, to be right in God's eyes, to have right standing before God. And we're going to look at that more in detail today. Last week, we looked at Romans chapter 1, kind of set the stage for uh, what we're going to be talking about uh, throughout the book of Romans. When we looked at the major theme of the book, it's found in Romans 1, 16 through 17, which hopefully you were able to memorize last week. That theme is that God's righteousness is revealed in Christ and it's acquired by faith. So there's a righteousness that's needed if we're going to stand before God. And the only way to receive that righteousness is through faith in Christ. And we're going to see again as we work through Romans 1, 2, and 3 that we cannot acquire that righteousness through any effort of our own. Whether that's uh, external good works, whether that's through some type of ceremony, whether that's through being born into the right family. That none of those things enable us to get the righteousness that we so desperately need to stand before God. Now we've defined some important terms and um, want to draw your attention back to those. Uh, the gospel. So anytime we're talking about the gospel, uh, specifically in Romans, we're talking about God's plan to save man from his sin through Christ by faith, for his glory forever. You can simplify that with God, man, sin, Christ, response. So it's God's plan to save man from his sin through Christ, by faith, for his glory forever. We talk about justification or being justified before God. That means to be declared righteous. Righteousness is, is right standing or being right before God. So Justification is being declared right before God, uh, whatever that looks like. And we're going to talk more about what that actually looks like. But what that looks like um, is being right in the presence of God. Justification, to be declared right or to be shown right in the presence of God. And we're going to see that nobody can be shown right before God. Instead, it necessitates God declaring us right even though we're not right. Um, and it's only through Christ that that can take place. Uh, we looked at God's wrath uh, being revealed in chapter 1. It continues to be revealed in chapter 2. Wrath is God's proper response to man's sin. God's wrath is appropriate. It's proper because of general revelation. General revelation is God revealing himself to everybody at all times and all places. It's, it's God's revelation through nature that's available to everybody. Since Adam and Eve were created to today... Everybody has the same general revelation. We can look around at creation. We can look around at nature. We can see God's existence. Romans 1 says his eternal power, his divine nature have been evident since God created the earth. And it leaves man without excuse. But as we come into Romans chapter 2, we also see that God has revealed himself specially to certain people at definite times and places. Meaning that God intervened in history and revealed things about himself that we couldn't know through nature. And he did that to specific people. Sometimes groups of people, sometimes individuals. There was a lot of special revelation that happened at Mount Sinai. As the nation of Israel was gathered at the foot of the mountain, God's revealing himself through thunder and lightning and smoke. And he's bringing his law to, uh, to physical tablets where it could be read. There, there's special revelation that comes through uh, announcements by angels. Mary received special revelation um, that, that she would bear the Messiah. So those are, uh, those are instances where God steps into um, the timeline of history, reveals special things. That also gives us no excuse. It makes us guilty because we do have special revelation. But we're also guilty because we have general revelation. So we looked last week at Romans chapter 1. We said that from an outline standpoint, Romans 1, 2... Uh, and parts of three are all about condemnation, God's wrath. Chapter one, God's wrath is being revealed against immoral people. These are the people that we would describe as really sinful people, like people that just live gross, sinful, inappropriate, obviously rebellious lives before God. These are the people that we would, unfortunately, a lot of times stand in judgment of. We would say, well, that person definitely deserves God's wrath. They're 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 wicked. They're evil. Obviously, um, God should be angry at them. And we saw reasons why God's wrath is appropriate against those people. They, they have the opportunity to know God, but they reject that knowledge of God. They suppress that truth. Um, 
They fail to worship God appropriately. And because of uh, failing to worship God, it leads to a lifestyle of sin. We said that when our worship is wrong, our lifestyle is wrong. When we're not worshiping God rightly, it causes us to think wrongly about everything. Uh, specifically, we saw in Romans chapter 1, it causes us to think wrongly about sex. We, ha- we have a wrong perspective, an unnatural perspective that leads to homosexuality, Paul says in Romans chapter 1. That that's the type of moral degradation that takes place. When worship is wrong, lifestyle becomes extremely wrong very quickly because God gives people over to those sinful desires. And we saw at the very end of chapter 1 where Paul says, these people who live these type of lifestyles, they practice sinful things and they're, they're approving of others that practice the same thing as well. This is somebody who, who lives a sexually immoral lifestyle and then looks at the homosexual and says, hey, that's their choice. That's their right. That's how they were created. That's how they're supposed to live. That's who they are. You can't judge them. It's somebody who's living sexually immoral and then looks at others and says, hey, they, they have the right to do so as well. So they don't judge other people. They approve other people. But Romans chapter 1 there at the end, it also says they know that what they're doing is wrong. They know what other people are doing is wrong, but they approve of it. They approve of themselves living that way. They approve of others living that way. And so then chapter 1 closes with the question really kind of lingering there. Well, what about good people, right? So you you read through all that, and the the problem is, is that there's a lot of lost people that would read chapter one and say yeah like if people are doing that kind of stuff they definitely deserve god's wrath they're definitely guilty look at the gross sins that we're talking about and then it leaves the question well what about those people that that are good that genuinely live good lives that that take care of other people that seem concerned about other people um what happens to them how what, what is their standing like before god So as we come into Romans chapter 2, we continue to look at condemnation, specifically God's wrath being revealed against the moral and the religious. Ultimately, Romans chapter 1 introduces to us the gospel, the power of the gospel, and then everything seems to flow out of that. And so looking back at Romans chapter 1, the big idea there is that the immoral, the heathen person, the wicked, sinful guy is guilty before God. All right, Romans chapter 2, same thing. What's, what's Romans chapter 2 about? Okay, God's wrath towards the religious, and who else? God's wrath towards the moral person, okay? I want you guys to, to, to be able to know what some of these chapters are about. Again, that's why we're doing it in this format, not to go in-depth in every verse, but to give you a good overview understanding of these chapters so that it gives you an awareness of where to go back to when you need some of this knowledge in discussion with other people with the gospel. So Romans chapter 1, it's how you deal with the immoral person. It's how you show his guilt before God. Romans chapter 2, how you show the, the genuinely good person, the guy that seems to just really live a, a moral, upstanding life, um, seems to hate evil, seems to really treasure good things in life, he's still guilty before God. And then what we a lot of times encounter in our uh, walks of life, the religious person, the person who is claiming and holding on to his religious upbringing. He was born into a Christian family. He was baptized at an early age. He, he went to Sunday school. What I deal with a lot of times, uh, they, they went through confirmation, which for a lot of kids, unfortunately, they translate that with their salvation. Uh, some denominations have like a, a discipleship type class that kids have to go through, which is at at the heart, very good. Uh, It's very important. It teaches them the faith that's been passed down to them by the apostles. Unfortunately, some kids misunderstand it as though, okay, I've graduated and I'm saved now because I now have passed this class, basically. The religious guy is guilty before God. It doesn't matter what experiences he's had in his previous religious life. So, Last week in Romans chapter 2, we, we said that God judges based on works. He, he's going to judge us one day by our works. And the, the accountability aspect is how much did you know that you were supposed to do? Okay, So he argues that on the day of judgment, those that never heard about Jesus, they're going to be judged by their works. Those that did hear about God, those that had the law, 
they're going to be judged by God. And they're going to be judged by how well they lived up to the standard of knowledge that they were given. And his point being is that it doesn't matter if you had the Bible or didn't, you're going to fall short of the knowledge that you did have. You're going to fall short. Those that never have heard of Jesus, have never heard of the Bible, have never had the privilege of reading through the Old Testament and the New Testament, they'll stand before God and God will hold them accountable to the law written on their hearts. And they'll be found guilty. They they violate their conscience. They know what's right. They know what's wrong. They choose to do wrong. They don't always choose to do right. They'll be found guilty. The one who has the Bible, who's got it in multiple copies at his house, he'll be found guilty as well. He'll be held accountable to what he knew he was supposed to do. He'll be found to fall well short of God's standard of glory, and he will be judged by God. Anybody who is judged by their works will be found guilty. Again, thinking through that courtroom setting, Paul's the prosecuting attorney, and he's bringing evidence after evidence after evidence against mankind. And we, the reader, are supposed to have that information resonate with us. We're supposed to feel as though... Every single person is guilty before God. All this evidence is just mounting to where when it comes time to decide, is man guilty or can man work his way to heaven? It's supposed to be obvious to us. Absolutely not. He cannot, he cannot fix his sin problem. Just as a matter of review, we've looked at Romans chapter 1, which highlighted the condemnation of the heathen man, the, the individual who is uh, grossly immoral, who who lives a lifestyle that others would would look at and say, yes, that person is guilty before God. Yes, that person has done sinful things. Yes, that person should worry on the day of judgment. Romans chapter two highlights the moral man who we said is ultimately a hypocrite. He's the individual who says that other people are sinful, but fails to see that he also is sinful, fails to see that he's guilty of a lot of the same things that the others are guilty of that he wants to judge. We also saw that the religious man, specifically the Hebrew, is guilty before God. We examine the fact in Romans 1 and 2 that God says the grounds of judgment are our works, that he will ultimately judge us based on our works, and that the rule he uses is how much knowledge do we have about God's law? So those that don't have the law, are judged by the law that's written on their hearts. Those that do have the law are judged by the law that they have. What we find in Romans chapter 3 is that man is incapable of keeping those laws, incapable of keeping the revealed law, incapable of keeping the law written on his heart because of what we described as depravity. It's man's uh, inability to obey God due to original sin. We are born depraved. We're born guilty already. We're born with the... uh, without the capacity to do anything good. And so we we term that depravity. Uh, It focuses not so much on how sinful we are, but how unholy we are. So all of mankind is depraved, even though from a human perspective, we would say more people maybe are sinful than others. Uh, We're all uh, falling short of any capacity to do good in the eyes of God. We also saw in Romans chapter 3 that Paul reveals how righteousness is available to us apart from the law, that it's through the work of Christ, his perfect life, his sacrificial death. It's through the work of Christ that God deals with our guilt problem by uh, satisfying God's wrath. We call that propitiation. We saw that uh, we are also justified through the work of Christ, uh, that being uh, the, the, the legal act that, that Tyson did such a good job of last week describing to us, the legal act where we are declared perfect, we are declared righteous, We are declared right all the time uh, in legal standing before God because what Jesus has accomplished for us. And then Christ also deals with our bondage problem. He redeems us from sin. He saves us from that slavery and now makes us slaves to righteousness. We saw that in putting our faith and trust in Christ, it removes boasting. It eliminates any distinctions. It breaks down the walls of Jew and Gentile, and it ultimately establishes the law. Just to kind of bring us back up to speed with where we've been, we've looked at Romans 1, 2, 3, and 4 and kind of seen Paul building on his argument about why we're condemned, uh, why we're unable to earn favor in God's eyes. Uh, We've looked specifically at different types of people through Romans 1, 2, and 3. We've seen how all of humanity can be grouped into one of those categories. And if not, Romans 3 describes for us the complete 
depravity, the complete inability of man to do good in the eyes of God. We said that God is ultimately going to judge mankind one day based on the knowledge that he's had and how he's responded to that knowledge. And based on that standard, all men will be found guilty before God. But then in Romans 3.21, we see that a different way of being right with God has been made available by God, not through our performance, but through the performance of Christ. And so we can be saved from our sin. We can be saved from our rebellion, not by us trying to fix it with our own good works, but through the perfect work of Christ, both in his life and in his death. And then we saw uh, recently in Romans chapter four, how Paul highlights that this type of salvation through grace by faith is how it's always been. He goes back to the Old Testament, shows us the life of Abraham and how Abraham, contrary to Jewish tradition, was not saved by his good works, that he was ultimately saved by his faith, that he believed promises that God made, that he didn't obey commands that God gave him. We can see a pattern in his life where we see failure on his part. So he's ultimately not justified by obedience. He's not justified by uh, external circumstances or, or ceremonies. We, we saw that uh, circumcision is something that happened later in his life after uh, his salvation, after he was justified. And so ultimately it all rests on his faith, his belief in the promises of God. And so that gives us a, a tangible example of how salvation works. And that was the purpose of Romans chapter four. We've been working through the book of Romans and highlighting the key aspects of each chapter. Romans chapter 1, uh, Paul completely shows us how the, the immoral, bad person is guilty before God. That he's accountable for his sin. He knows what's wrong. He knows his conscience tells him one thing. He disobeys that conscience. He chooses to sin. He's guilty before God. Romans 2 shows us that the good person, the guy who wants to judge others for their sin and approve of himself and his good works is guilty before God too. That he shows he has an understanding of right and wrong. He still chooses to do wrong. Paul also shows that the religious person, the person who comes to church, the person who grew up uh, in a Christian family, who reads his Bible and prays and, and tries to do these external things, that he's guilty before God. That it's without the blood of Christ, according to Romans 4, that, or Romans 3, without the, uh, the work of Christ, without the, the shed blood of Christ, without that, we can never hope to have God's wrath satisfied. And so Paul shows us in Romans 3 that while everybody's guilty, it's through Christ that everyone can be saved. Um, and that, that is available through the work of Christ, not by works, not by us earning it, but by God graciously giving it to us. In Romans chapter 4, we see an example of how this works through the life of Abraham. And Abraham shows us that he was justified before he ever did anything good, before he ever did any type of religious ceremony. Uh, God made him right uh, through that declaration in his standing. And then God continued to work in his life to, uh, to sanctify him. And we're going to see today what that means. And then last week, Romans chapter 5, we, we saw our connection both to Adam in our old life. So Adam and Eve, Adam sins in the garden. We're guilty because of Adam's sin. It affects everything about creation. We're born sinful. Uh, and so we do sinful things because of a sin nature that we are born into this world with. But through the second Adam, Jesus Christ, he comes and through his righteous work, through his perfection, his perfect life, we can become perfect. Um, both in our account before God, that justification where God declares us righteous because he moves Christ's righteousness to our account. But then also practically as God begins to work in our life to make us more like Christ. And then one day when Jesus comes back, those of us that are believers, we will be made perfect in God's eyes. Uh, but just a quick recap, Romans 1, we said, talked about uh, God's condemnation, his rightful condemnation towards People that we would generally define as evil. People that are guilty of gross type sins across the board. People that even lost people would say those people deserve to go to hell. So there's, there's that perspective in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 2 tells us that the person who's striving to be moral, striving to be a good person is guilty before God. That in his striving to be moral, he compares himself to other people. And he says, I'm good in God's eyes because I'm better than so and so. And we said that Paul highlights the fact that because he's so good at seeing sin in the lives of others, he condemns himself. 
Because if he's so good at seeing sin, he should see his own sin and see that he's guilty before God. We also said at the end of Romans chapter 2, it tells us that the religious person's guilty. Specifically, in that context, the Jewish person. But we took it a step further to the uh, Bible Belt Southern person who goes to church, grew up in a Christian family, maybe even went to a Christian school. That person is guilty before God. He's not saved based on his heritage. He is guilty, even though he has all this knowledge about God, until he submits to that knowledge, he is guilty before God. Romans chapter three, if you don't see yourself in any of those categories, Romans chapter three puts everybody into a big category and says everybody is guilty before God. That God's gonna judge us based on the knowledge that we have, whether that's knowledge in our hearts or whether we have the written word. So even the guy in Africa who does not know about Christ is guilty before God because he has a knowledge of God in his heart and he rejects that knowledge. We said that everyone stands guilty before God, that no one can work their way to heaven, no one can be obedient to the law that they have, that we all fall short of God's standard. But Romans 3.21 tells us there's another way, that God has made a way for us to be uh, righteous in his eyes, and that's through the work of Jesus Christ. And so the rest of Romans chapter 3 is all the good news that comes from the gospel. Romans chapter 4 is an example of how someone uh, gets saved through faith. It's the story of Abraham and how Abraham was not saved by circumcision. He was not saved Uh, by keeping the law. He was not saved because he was the father of the Jewish race. He was saved because he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Romans chapter five, we said that it it, uh, describes two Adams. We have Adam in the garden and then Christ as the second Adam and that Adam is guilty of sin. We all become sinful. Christ comes and is perfect for us and when we submit to Christ, his perfection comes to us. So we're sinners because of Adam. We're made righteous now in God's eyes because of what Christ accomplishes in our life. And then Romans chapter six, we looked at last week, we said that it describes us being dead to sin and enslaved to God. The idea there is that you can't enjoy sin and salvation. And it's the first real discussion on sanctification in Romans, uh, in the book of Romans. We define sanctification as that progressive work where the believer and the Holy Spirit are working together in partnership to become less sinful and more like Christ. So the Holy Spirit empowers us, but we have a role to play. We saw that in Romans chapter six. We're not to submit ourselves to sin. We're to submit ourselves to righteousness. So it's a progressive work. Holy Spirit and the believer working together to be less sinful, more Christ-like. It's different for believers. So some of us are more sanctified than others. When we talk about justification, being declared righteous, being declared perfect in God's eyes, that's equal for all Christians. We're all right in God's eyes. We're all perfect in God's eyes if we're believers this morning. We are not all sanctified to the same level as other believers in this room, though. That's a progressive work that happens with the Holy Spirit working in our life. We said the key to understanding what it means to be dead to sin and united with Christ is to understand that we've escaped that bondage to sin. And we've escaped in such a way that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, we can now choose to not give in to temptation. There's a way for us to escape. We're not in bondage to sin. We're not enslaved to sin. We've been set free from sin. We can now live empowered, victorious lives over sin. We said that he gave us three words last week. We're to know that we're dead to sin. I told you that there's a Uh, an aspect of our sanctification where we have to know scriptural truth if we're gonna be sanctified. We have to know the depths of scripture. And I challenge those of you that have been with us for a while now, if you can't have a conversation that lasts longer than 15 minutes about justification, you don't know the doctrine of justification like you need to. You have to know biblical truth if it's gonna be lived out in your life. Paul goes on to say, not only do you know it, you have to reckon it to be true, meaning I know it, and I also know that it's true about me. I'm submitting to it. And then that third word that he uses in Romans chapter six is we have to yield ourselves to righteousness. We have to cut off the aspect of giving ourselves for sinful purposes. We said that the actual language there is that we give ourselves as weapons. We give our weapons over to the enemy. We say, Satan, use my body for sinful purposes. Paul says, stop doing that and start giving your bodies to righteousness, Use your weapons for God's glory. As we continue our journey through uh, the book of Romans, we saw last week specifically, uh, or really the last two weeks, that we're 
um, through through our joining with Christ, we are dead to certain things. Specifically, in chapter 6, we see that we are dead to sin, that we've been set free from sin, that we've been set free from the bondage to sin, that we've been rescued from that relationship. And that has all kinds of practical implications for our life. Uh, It really has all kinds of practical implications for our time and accountability with each other, the things that we even say that we're struggling with and how we're struggling with those things. We want to make sure that it lines up with what Scripture has to say about us. And in Romans chapter 7, we saw that there's a a right way and a wrong way to pursue sanctification. That even in being saved and being saved from sin and rescued from that bondage and slavery, uh, if if we're not careful, we fall back into the mindset of, okay, now that I'm saved, I'm saved apart from the law, but my sanctification means me going back to the law and, and trying to fulfill the law in my own flesh and my own power. And we saw last week that Paul uh, draws our attention to the fact that uh, if we're seeking to obey the law for our sanctification, we will be met with failure time and time again. Um, and so we even highlighted the, the wrestling that Paul does there at the end of chapter seven. Is he talking about a Christian? Is he talking about a non-Christian? We looked at supporting evidence for both of those perspectives last week. And I told you that I've kind of arrived at a Uh, a perspective that doesn't really focus on is it a Christian or is it a non-Christian. It's an individual who doesn't understand the purpose of the law. And I told you that was a deviation from some of the guys that I've listened to and respected for a long time and what their understanding of the text is. Um, but then I was encouraged even this week as I was studying John Stott and his commentary on Romans that, that he sees this man in Romans 7 as someone who, who doesn't understand the law specifically maybe a Jewish individual who, who had been taught to love the law and would have told you that he loved the law and now that he's saved goes back to the law. And we see this all through the New Testament. Uh, Paul and Peter and other apostles having to go into churches and wrestle with their minds about where the law fits into their sanctification, that they were wanting to revert back to a legalistic, law-keeping, rule-keeping type mindset. And I think that's the picture that Paul gives us in Romans 7. This individual trying to obey the law in his flesh, we said that there was really no mention of the Holy Spirit, and all that it leads to is frustration. At the end of chapter 7 there, he's, he's crying out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. I told you last week, I can't, I can't view that as an okay scenario. I can't view this as a mature Christian standpoint, that there has to be more. There has to be uh, a, a different level of victory that we can expect in the Christian life if we're being empowered by the Spirit. And I think that's what Paul gives us in Romans chapter eight. I think he begins to show us that the law can be accomplished, that obedience can be accomplished when the Holy Spirit is working in and through our life. I think Paul brings that to our attention in chapter eight. If we were to title or uh, characterize chapter eight in a way that we can remember, and we've been trying to do that with each chapter, so Romans chapter one, that's the condemnation of the immoral man. Romans chapter two is the condemnation of the the moral man and the religious man. Romans chapter three is uh, the condemnation of the world and then salvation through Christ. Romans chapter four is the example of justification with uh, Abraham. Romans chapter five is what? Anybody remember? It's the two Adams. So we've got Adam and Christ and, and the comparison and the contrasting there of the works that they have done and how that affects us individually. Romans chapter six, we've already highlighted this week. It's where we are dead to sin. That's where you get the passage about baptism and the picture of baptism and why we baptize Romans chapter seven is our understanding of the law now that we're saved and how we are set free from the law. And I challenged you last week, we are set free from the law in the sense that uh, we're no longer uh, under its legal demands. We're no longer condemned for not keeping the law. We're also set free in the sense that um, we don't keep the law as just a list of rules. I told you last week that in, in salvation, we're now set free to obey promises that lead to obedience, that there's a a motivation there about why we do the things that we do that's different for a Christian. Prior to salvation, we're keeping rules because that's what saves us in our minds. It's being good, doing good gets us to heaven. After salvation, when we're set free from the law, it's now all about believing promises. 
Abraham believed promises and it was counted to him as righteousness. And when we believe the promises behind God's laws, it naturally leads us to obey those laws. So if I believe that God has a specific plan for sex and and for relationships, um, and I believe those promises that God has good things in store for me, it leads me to obey the commandment of not committing adultery versus just reading that and saying, okay, I've got to limit my sexual activity because God tells me to. There's promises behind those commands that if we obey those, it leads to victory. The Holy Spirit's changing our mindset about the laws uh, that are in God's word. We said that the law is not bad, right? Like the law is not evil. The law in and of itself is very good, but when we, we have to understand the purpose of the law. Law reveals sin. It, it, it defines sin for us. And ultimately, God gave law not so that we could obey it for salvation, but so that we could see just how sinful we really are. And so Romans chapter eight, all about these promises of glorification that what's supposed to be accomplished in our life is gonna be accomplished in our life. Uh, the Holy Spirit's there to give us victory over sin. So even, in, uh, even though we see in Romans 7 that um, the, the law's there and we can't keep the law, even though we want to keep the law, that the Holy Spirit empowers us to live obediently in Romans chapter 8, that we can find victory. Not perfection here on this earth, but we can find what we would call victory within the, within the Christian church. Um, and so all these promises are made, and then Paul introduces the the anticipated question of, well, can I trust that these promises are gonna happen? Because it doesn't look like God's kept promises to the Old Testament people. Doesn't look like God kept promises to his old people in the old covenant. Israel seems to have failed. Israel seems to have faltered. Uh, Is God starting over with a new plan? And so Paul wants to address the fact that God's promises have been kept, that God's plan is still intact, that nothing has changed, that despite Israel's unfaithfulness, Despite Israel's unbelief, nothing has caught God by surprise. And in fact, it was anticipated, it was planned. Um, It's exactly how it should be. And so Paul highlights the fact that it's a remnant of Israel that was going to be saved all along. So Romans 9 secured the promises of Romans 8. I told you last week that Romans 9 is offensive if you believe that God owes equal opportunity for salvation to everyone. So obviously Romans 9 highlights doctrines of predestination and election and God's choosing and how that plays out in time. And I told you that it's offensive if we approach it with the mindset, well, God owes something to everybody. He owes equal opportunity. If God's going to save anybody, then he's obligated to make it available to everybody. Um, And we said that ultimately that, uh, that takes away from what God's mercy is, that God's mercy by definition is something that we do not Deserve. So to argue that everybody deserves an opportunity is to minimize and diminish God's mercy. And so it's offensive if we believe that God owes something to everybody. What we find in Romans 9 is that God owes nothing to anybody. Ultimately, we approach Romans 9 with a, with a desire and a heart to see people saved, ultimately to see all people saved. And we see that heart in God uh, as he writes to us in his scripture that he has a desire for people to be saved, but there's a greater desire than that desire for all to be saved. And that desire is for him to receive ultimate maximum glory. And what we see in Romans 9 is that God receives glory by offering mercy to some and not to others Um, And it's clearly defined for us there in Romans chapter nine. We see that God's faithful, keeps his promises. God is just. He acts according to his character. He does what is right and good. And that ultimately God is not unfair, uh, that he works in such a way that his mercy shines against the backdrop of his wrath. He's obligated to be glorious, not to be universalistic. Meaning he's, ob- he's obligated to be glorious. He's not obligated to save everybody and that does not violate who he is as God. For him not to be glorious would violate him being God. And what we see in Romans 9 is that he is committed to being as glorious as possible. Even if that at times is difficult for us to swallow. I mean, I told you that Romans 9 will never be as beautiful as it needs to be. It will never capture your heart the way that it needs to and the way that Paul intends for it to based on one sermon alone, that it necessitates you being in the word, you studying what Romans 9 says in light of the rest of scripture and seeing God's glory and his freedom to do what he wants to do separate from who we are 
that study has to happen in your life before this chapter really is as glorious and as beautiful as it needs to be. And so we've been working through the book of Romans chapter by chapter. We got to chapter 8, which flows out of 6 and 7, the idea of fighting sin. Can we find victory over sin or are we destined to wallow in our sin until Jesus comes back. And we said that Romans 8 actually communicates victory to us, not perfection, not that we can be completely set free from sin um, to where we don't sin ever, but there is a victory that's promised to us that by walking in the Spirit, spirit, we don't have to continually give in to the desires of our flesh. And then Romans 8 communicates to us God's love, that nothing can separate us from God's love, so that even in our failures, even in our midst to pursue sanctification, when we fail in that sanctification, we're secure in Christ. He foreknew us. He has destined us for glory. And then you, you would expect us to jump right to Romans chapter 12, offering our bodies as living sacrifices and just the practicality of being a Christian. And yet what we find is chapters 9, 10, and 11, this a seemingly disconnected portion of Scripture that's thrown in between 8 and 12 that's all about Israel. And I told you that it's really not as disconnected as it seems, that ultimately promises are made to us in Romans chapter 8, promises that God works good, promises that God will keep his promises to us. And yet Paul anticipates, well, what about the Jewish people? What about God's chosen people? It doesn't seem like God is keeping his promises with them. Will God turn his back on us as Gentiles? Will God turn his back on the church if he's done that with Israel? And so Paul feels it necessary to communicate to us the past, the present, and the future perspective of Israel. Romans chapter 9, we looked at Israel's past. Um, Has God been unfaithful to Israel? Has God failed to keep his promises with Israel? We said no that God has been faithful, that he never intended to save all of Israel. Romans 9, Paul tells us, God has always saved a remnant. God has always saved a portion of Israel. And we looked at some difficult discussion there. A lot of election talk, a lot of God choosing talk contained for us in Romans chapter 9. Ultimately, where you stand on man's free will and God's sovereignty and election, wherever you stand on that, ultimately we come to the conclusion that not everybody's getting saved. Romans chapter 9 is very clear about that. If you weren't already clear about that, Romans chapter 9 is very clear. Not everybody's getting saved. We believe that God could save everybody if he wanted to, and God chooses not to save everybody. Everybody believes that. God obviously does not save everyone. There will be people in hell. Now, we could disagree about the why. Some will um, emphasize more of man's free will. Well, man has rejected God. Others are going to highlight more of God's sovereign election. God has, has rejected man. But regardless, we will meet in the middle the fact that God does not save everybody. What we find from Romans chapter 9 is that God obligates himself to be glorious. He doesn't obligate himself to be universalistic, meaning God is not obligated to save everybody. He is obligated to be glorious. And what we find in Romans chapter 9 is that God has a glorious plan in place where some will experience him for eternity, others will be banished from his presence for eternity. That leads us into Romans chapter 10, and I think Romans chapter 10 is so timely placed by Paul because if there was any tendency to come out of Romans chapter 9 thinking, oh, fatalism, everything's set in place, I can't change anything, nothing can happen in the future that that I can do that can affect anything, so I'm just gonna let it happen. Paul says, nope, Romans chapter 10, you have responsibility in God's plan. You're the tool that God uses to accomplish what he wants to do. And so Romans chapter 10 is very timely placed. It protects us from any type of hyper position that would say, I'm just going to sit back and watch God's plan unfold. No, God says you have a role to play in this plan. Uh, We looked at the responsibility for us to be zealous as we opt into God's plan, to be universalistic ourselves as we seek to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. People cannot be saved. Romans chapter 9, everybody that's supposed to be saved will get saved. Romans chapter 10, they won't get saved unless we go to them. And God has ordained that people will get saved, and he's ordained that they will get saved through our testimony. So it's a glorious picture of God receiving all the glory, but not choosing to do it isolated from us, that he chooses to include us in that plan where he gets glory. And so he, he graciously and mercifully calls us 
to be the ones to take this message of salvation to the ends of the earth. Uh, we're working through the book of Romans chapter by chapter, and so we come to chapter 12 this morning, and as we've done in previous weeks, I want to read the entire chapter to set the context. Uh, there's so much material here. Um, we could spend weeks just on chapter 12, but what we're attempting to do is to give you a complete overview of the book of Romans, flowing out of our understanding of the book of Jude, that we're to contend for the faith, talking about that faith that we're called to contend for. Um, and so we've been studying heavily the past three weeks in chapters 9, 10, and 11, understanding doctrines of election and God choosing for salvation and, and how that's not in conflict with his grace and mercy that he extends to all people. Specifically looking at uh, chapter 11 last week, how the Jewish people continue to factor into God's plan, uh, that there is a remnant that God intends to save. Um, and he's been saving that remnant for all time. Uh, and continues to save people until he returns. Um, and so we, we rejoiced over the fact that, that God is faithful. And in chapter 11, that points us to God's faithfulness as we see his faithfulness to his people of the Old Testament and how he continues to be faithful to those promises, that he has not set aside his people, he has not uh, relinquished those promises, he has not failed to be faithful to his people. He continues to do everything that he's intended to set out to do. And we rejoiced over that last week in chapter 11. The past several weeks have been devoted to um, understanding Israel better. Romans chapter 9, we looked at the, uh, the past of Israel and how God has been faithful to work. We looked um, in chapter 10 at what, what's happening presently with Israel. Um, in chapter 11, what's going to continue to happen in the future with Israel, that God has intentions and plans to save his people, and that we, we fall into that because we've been grafted into God's people, right? Like we've been grafted into what God is doing. So he, he began that work through Abraham, making covenants with Abraham that flowed into the Jewish people that we see in the Old Testament. And then by God's grace, and we learn also because of Jewish rejection, by God's grace, he begins to overwhelmingly in the New Testament include the Gentile people. And for probably all of us here this morning, we can be grateful, eternally thankful that God chose to include us. And so we looked last week at chapter 11 about how God's, uh, God working in Israel, working through their rejection, brings us to salvation. We said that Israel's fall has won the Gentiles. And then Paul elaborates and says, God is going to win the Jewish people by making them jealous over the fact that Gentiles are getting saved. So his plan all along was to save Jewish people. The Jewish people reject him. So God says, I'm going to turn to the Gentiles. But by turning to the Gentiles, he's ultimately keeping his heart and focus on the Jewish people because now the promise is they will turn to Christ. They will accept him as their Messiah because of jealousy overseeing what he does through the Gentiles. And then ultimately... Through the Jewish victory, Paul says, if you think people got saved when the Jews rejected the Messiah, think about how many people are going to get saved when the Jews accept their Messiah. And so ultimately, Romans chapter 11 culminates with everybody being saved that's supposed to be saved. Not everybody being saved. It's not a promise that all of Israel will be saved. Instead, the promise is all that are supposed to be saved will be saved because God is sovereign and he is in control of man's salvation and he will save. Nothing will stop his plans. His plans have been in place before the foundations of the world and they will be carried out. And by God's grace, he chooses to include us in those plans. Heavy doctrinal stuff going on in 9, 10, and 11. All right, so we've worked through the first 12 chapters and last week marked kind of a transition period where Chapters 1 through 11 were heavy on doctrine, heavy on theology, heavy on us understanding who God is, who man is, man's relationship to God because of sin, Christ and the work that Christ accomplishes and how Christ rescues us back to God. We've seen um, the assurance that comes from the gospel that, that nothing can separate us from God's love. So once we're saved, we are sealed until Jesus Christ returns, that um, our salvation is based on the work of Christ. It's never been based on our work. And so uh, Christ saves us. He frees us from sin. We looked at the fact that when we're Christians, we yield ourselves now to righteous purposes. Um, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can find victory over sin as we wait for Jesus 
to return. And then Romans 12 kind of starts the heavy application section. In light of all this truth, in light of what the gospel communicates to us, here's now how we live as believers. And so last week we looked at our responsibility to consecrate our bodies and renew our minds that we have to submit our minds to start thinking differently if we ever hope to live differently. And I challenged you last week with this statement, while being in the word does not guarantee sanctification, not being in the word all but guarantees there won't be sanctification. So just because you get up every morning and have a five, 10 minute devotional life doesn't guarantee you that you're gonna be more holy. But what is guaranteed is that if you're not in the word, if you're not spending time with Christ, if you're not feasting on the word, you will not experience sanctification. You will not experience growth in your faith. That, that the word is necessary. Uh, the Holy Spirit using God's word, it's necessary if we're going to uh, become more like Christ and become less sinful, which is how we've defined sanctification. It's becoming more like Christ, being conformed to his image, and becoming less sinful in our daily lives. We saw last week that ultimately we are to walk in humility. We saw how uh, we're a part of the body of Christ. We've been gifted differently. We're to use those gifts. Um, we're to... Uh, rejoice in the midst of suffering. We're to be in prayer about that. We're to be hospitable towards others. The last section of chapter 12 uh, highlights the fact that we're to interact with our enemies differently now that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us rather than seeking vengeance and rather than celebrating in vengeance. Instead, we're to, we're to love our enemies. We're to forgive our enemies. We're to serve our enemies. Um, and that ultimately through that type of behavior, we will win our enemies that our enemies will be drawn to repentance, that in, in an effort to be our enemies, they find that we will not act like an enemy towards them. Instead, we act like a friend, and we end up winning those people to Christ. He closes that chapter, do not, overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we saw that the Christian has responsibilities in how he interacts with his enemies, and then Paul brings us to chapter 13 today and gives us insight about how we are to interact with our government or to interact with the state, specifically the governing authorities that have been placed over us. We come to Romans chapter 14. We've been discussing both in 12 and 13 principles related to uh, the type of people that we're to love. So our minds are to be renewed, and we said that as, a, as our minds are renewed, it leads us to, uh, to love our enemies, to love our neighbors, to maybe not go too far as to say to love government and love state, but obviously to be respectful towards our government, to be respectful towards our state, to be um, engaging that in prayer uh, versus uh, criticism towards others. And so kind of seeing practically how the gospel that we looked at from Romans 1 through 11 now leads to a practical daily type um, lifestyle and how that looks with different aspects of our life. And Romans 14 is instructions about how to interact with people within the church that vary in their beliefs, uh, specifically about things that they engage in on a daily basis. As we come to the end of the book of Romans, Paul begins to kind of tie together finally what he's been um, highlighting for us over the past few weeks. In chapters 14 and 15, we've spent a lot of time talking about uh, the liberty that's available to Christians, but also the need for unity in the midst of that liberty. And sometimes what that means is those that are considered the stronger brothers being willing to give up areas of freedom for the sake of those that are weaker in some of these areas, those that aren't as comfortable with Christians participating in certain activities. The stronger brother is willing to give up the right to do those things for the sake of unifying the body, uh, that there's bigger things that are important uh, versus some of these freedoms that we've discussed over the past few weeks. Uh, we said that in Romans 14, Paul doesn't try to uh, minimize the diversity in the faiths. He says there's people with strong faith, there's people with weaker faith. There are people that are going to say that some things are okay. There are going to be others that say some things aren't okay. And we highlighted some of those in the context of when Romans was written. We talked about the meat. We talked about the days, the Sabbath versus no Sabbath. We talked about things that are relevant for today. Uh, the use of alcohol, the use of tobacco, uh, tattoos, different things like that that are considered 
um, gray areas, gray issues in Christian culture. Can a Christian do this? Can a Christian not do this? We said that Paul ultimately encourages us to embrace that diversity, um, to not despise each other, to not look down upon each other, to not judge each other, but instead to embrace the fact that we see things differently. We said in order for us to, to be unified in the midst of disagreement, we've got to pursue doctrinal stability, meaning our, our beliefs and understandings about these issues have to be shaped by God's word, not how we were raised. And we have to get away from, I was told this, I was taught this, versus this is what scripture says about this. Um, so the weak brother a lot of times can be encouraged to have a stronger faith when he examines scripture for himself versus just relying on traditions that he's been taught. So we, we pursue doctrinal stability. So if we're all studying the same word of God, the hope and the belief is, is that we're gonna continue to move closer and closer to being unified in what God's word has to say. We grip the things that we abstain from very strongly, okay? So we don't just go into it and say, okay, I was clearly raised wrong or taught wrong. I need to radically change everything that I think and believe. We said, no, that the, the conscience has to catch up with what you're being told now, potentially, through Scripture. That your conscience is what ultimately has to guide you in some of these areas. So, you're raised all your life to believe that alcohol is wrong for a Christian. You now see that there's liberty and freedom. It doesn't mean that you then go out and begin to drink alcohol, even if you're still convicted about it. That the conscience has to catch up with your knowledge in your head now. And so, that, that time gap may be long, it may be short, um, it was uh, over a course of years for me as I began to see things in Scripture, began to uh, let go of some perceptions that I had had previously. But even in letting go for the fact that other people could participate in it, there was still conviction that I could not. And I shared with you some last week. I, I, don't, I don't see any issue uh, with a Christian potentially um, enjoying alcohol responsibly, enjoying tobacco responsibly, enjoying tattoos responsibly. Um, I personally have chosen not to participate in those things, not because I'm convicted about them, but I just haven't seen the benefit in them. Um, just haven't seen the ultimate benefit to embrace that as a part of my life uh, at this point. Um, and I told you that that's really where you want to be. You want to be in that category where you see these things as free for the Christian, so it frees me from judging other people that do these things, so you don't have to hide these activities from me if you participate in them, uh, but it's also where you want to get to where you're okay with not doing them, that if you find out that you're in a setting where, hey, this is a big issue for the people that I'm hanging out with, that it's not something that you have to force and, and drive towards somebody, that you can just say, hey, if that's a big deal to you, I'm not going to participate in it. I don't have to do these things, uh, so we grip those convictions strongly and then we're willing to, to uh, let go of these freeing liberty-type activities. We, we hold to that very loosely. We hold to it very loosely. It's not something that we're going we're gonna to die over. Um, we want to be able to unify uh, with people in our church that maybe don't see things quite like we do right now. Romans 15 continued this idea uh, of the stronger and the weaker. And we said ultimately the responsibility in chapter 15 is all about the strong brother uh, seeking unity with the weaker brother, being willing to give up things. We said that ultimately, if we're going to be unified, strong brother has to act like Christ. Uh, he has to bear with the weak. He has to seek the needs of the weak over his own needs. And then last week, I gave you some other factors to consider as you're kind of wrestling through. Is, is, is this something that I feel uh, free to do? Drink alcohol, use tobacco, anything else you want to fill in the blank with. We talked about uh, the neighbor factor. Will it offend a fellow Christian? We talked about the missional factor. Will it offend a non-Christian? We talked last week. There are some activities that non-Christians believe Christians should not participate in. And by participating in them, we harm the gospel. Um, so we have to ask that question. The master factor, is this something that will enslave me? The health factor, is this something that will cause harm to me physically? The legal factor, is this something that would violate the law that I've been placed under, the, the governmental law? And then we talked last week, too, about how Paul highlighted the maturity of this church in Rome because of their commitment to the word. 
And we said that Paul highlights some of his upcoming plans, and we see how committed he is to the word and how committed he is to growing the kingdom, not just strengthening the kingdom. He says, I'm going places where people haven't heard the gospel. That that's ultimately my goal. I'm excited about the churches that have been planted. I'm excited about those that have responded to the gospel. But he eventually says, my work here is complete. My work here is done. I've got to move on. And it reminds me of why we're here and why we've planted Sovereign Hope. We're excited about people that come that are already believers. Ultimately, we want to be a place that's adding people to the faith, not just adding people from other churches. We've added people since we started Sovereign Hope, but we can't take credit for any of these people. We can't take credit for, for Angel and Sarah and Catherine that have come to our church. They were Christians prior to coming. They were strong Christians prior to coming. We rejoice that they're here. We rejoice that they are part of our church family, but we can't take credit. Paul says, I, I'm building off of other people's foundations if I stay here. I've got to move on. I've got to go find areas where people haven't heard Christ. And I told you that as a church, we need to be challenged in that direction, and the elders specifically need to be challenged in that direction. How are we going to be faithful to take the word to places where people have not heard Christ yet? Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.